Welcome to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. This is a show for listeners wanting to learn more about the ins and outs of the private securities brokerage landscape. Each episode will feature insightful conversations with the world's leading investment bankers, placement agents, capital providers, startup CEOs, and more. And with that, let's get into the show. All right. Well, Logan Yanavyak, thank you so much for joining us here on the Pencils Down podcast. It's great to be here. Thank you. I usually start by asking our guests to share a little bit about their backgrounds uh, and their eventual paths that led them to investment banking. I think in your case, your path has been particularly interesting and your vision is something I find deeply admirable. I, I know from listening, for example, to the podcast interview that you gave earlier this year at the Yale School of Management, um, that harnessing capital markets for good has been your North Star and your mantra from the get-go. Uh, tell us a little bit about what it was in your personal, family, and educational backgrounds that led you to this extraordinarily timely vision and work in the capital market space. Thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's always fun to share a little bit about my journey because I do think it was a non-traditional kind of path to investment banking. Um, my original interest stemmed from from land conservation work. Um, I grew up in the Triangle region of North Carolina, and in high school, I started noticing just the sprawl development that was happening in my area. And, you know, some of my favorite um, open spaces, farmland was starting to get gobbled up by by this development process. That kind of led me to ask the question of why do we, why is land development happening this way? From an economic perspective, why does it make more sense to build these developments rather than keep land as open space or, or um, working lands like farmland or forest forest land? And so that was kind of the the nexus of, of things I was thinking about when I entered college. Um, like many people trying to affect change in the envir- environmental movement, I started with um, an interest in local government and nonprofit work. And so I launched my career at an environmental think tank called the World Resources Institute. And from there, I was, I was learning a lot about um, market-based tools for conservation. And I know that's a mouthful. Um, really what that means is we were trying to internalize negative externalities. And so we were trying to find ways to, to reprice and, and embed the, the true cost of natural resources like clean water, clean air, carbon into the economy and try to find ways to do that. I was doing that through the forest forestry sector. So we were trying to find ways to pay landowners and bring in new revenue streams from things like the carbon markets. And what I found when I was doing that research and in this position at a think tank was that there were a lot of well-meaning, thoughtful people I worked with, some of whom had strong backgrounds in business and finance. But really, at the end of the day, we were trying to influence the capital markets, but not being investors ourselves and not really sitting in the middle of transactions and and deal making and all the things uh, related to the capital markets, we kind of were from the outside perspective, in my opinion, like trying to influence. And so um, I came to a point where I was talking, you know, I was getting to know more people and and trying to figure out my next steps in my career. And I had an experience where I realized that the organization itself was had an endowment. And the endowment wasn't doing sustainable investing. And I found that to be really perplexing that here you have a global environmental think tank whose mission is to have impact um, on things like climate change, 
But yet their investment corpus was not invested in any way that was really considered sustainable. And the CFO at the time was like, actually said to me, doesn't sustainable investing mean we're going to make less money? And I just set out to prove him wrong. So I did a bunch of research and approached him about shifting the the investment allocation. And we, we went through the process of doing that. And that just, then I was hooked, you know, I, I thought, I really want to be a, a professional who can cross train in natural resource management, who can talk about climate, but who also knows about investing. So I, I went to business school and basically transitioned over into um, roles that could enable me to sit at the intersection of financial and the financial services sector and, um, and climate change and, and environmental impact. Yeah, there, there's so much opportunity to deliver value at that nexus. I think like you, I'm somebody that entered the capital market space, uh, having had a, a background in public policy. And I certainly see that there's a tremendous opportunity there, uh, precisely at that nexus. I wanted to dig into one of the concepts that, that you mentioned, which is the regenerative movement. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I characterized your vision in my previous question as timely for a reason. It, you're talking about this regenerative movement, uh, not just in investment banking, but in global society writ large, which uh, you see as championing an imperative. You know, to quote you, one of the things you mentioned uh, in that podcast was to quote, heal a lot of what's happened in the extractive industries, soil, landscapes, how we work with communities, workers, before we can sustain anything. Mm-hmm. To say that that's visionary is really only to scratch the surface of things. And and I wanted to dig a little deeper, particularly in the context of the dire challenge that we're all facing in the context of climate change. Specifically, do you think that our generation is capable of rising to this challenge of marshalling our best efforts, our intelligence, our work uh, to address uh, the climate change challenge? And, and are we truly capable of even solving it? Well, I think so much comes down to the underlying values that we adopt as a society and how those values play out in our decision-making process. And so I think that, you know, the value system is shifting and that more and more people are more aware of the impact that humanity is having on the planet in a variety of different ways. And I think that is translating into different decisions. But I think we really need to, especially in the capital markets, I think one of the most fundamental shifts that needs to happen is for people to think differently about risk, um, for people to think differently about their return expectations, and for people to connect the dots between what they're investing in and the underlying social and environmental and natural systems that we depend on, and really start to see those systems as allies and interwoven and interdependent rather than just a linear model where we're taking from the system and not giving back and then just making money off of it. So I'm seeing a lot more shifts in in the capital markets, the way investors are thinking, but I think there's a long way to go. And I think perhaps one of those shifts gets us to a formulation uh, that you've called uh, the regenerative quotient and one that that can apply to investment bankers and investors and, and just broadly into the capital market space. Can you expand a little bit more on this concept of regenerative quotient uh, and how that might be relevant to wiser and more sustainable approaches towards impact investing? Absolutely. 
That was a concept that was co-created when I was at Providence Capital Group, uh, which is a sell-side advisory firm that focuses on food and agriculture. And, you know, the idea really that was initiated by my colleague at the time, Adrian Rodriguez, was this idea of, you know, there's an EQ that we've talked about, emotional intelligence. And then why why don't we think about it from a regenerative quotient perspective? Like the fact that the leaders of today and tomorrow really need to think holistically to um, embed a variety of different concepts and interdisciplinary thinking to solve problems. And so is there a way that we can start to measure that type of intelligence and really invite people to think more holistically about about decision making? So I absolutely think that, you know, Einstein even said you can't solve the problems of today with the thinking of, you know, the past. And so I think we are all being pushed to think more multidimensionally about how we solve today's challenges. Absolutely. And I think, you know, one of the one of the challenges oftentimes that I think, especially folks in the ESG space uh, grapple with is that, yes, of course, you need to measure it and you need to kind of come up with a, a criteria that can be universally understood to inform investment decision making and the like. But you also need to cheerlead that and galvanize the the usage of that criteria mm-hmm. across the capital markets ecosystem. Any ideas about how that challenge can be overcome? From everything I've experienced working with investors, to a large degree, you know, we are social animals. And there is this aspect of looking to leadership and looking to networks and influencers for adoption, whether it's deciding to invest in a deal or going to a conference or um, just trying something new, a new way of thinking about metrics. So to me, you know, having some of those those influencers in in the investment space adopt and really try out some of these concepts is is going to be crucial to affect change over the long term. So I really look to some of the leaders in the space to be those forward thinking agents and to disseminate the information amongst their network of trusted allies. And some of the groups that I think are are doing this work are Tonic, Creo Syndicate. Uh, the impact, you know, there's some some organizations that have really take, uh, taken on the the sometimes challenging role of organizing investor groups, often family offices, high net worth individuals, foundations, and others to try to cross pollinate and to to bring some of these concepts uh, more quickly into the spaces. Thank you for that. That was incredibly insightful. Just to switch gears for a second, you know, one of the things I noticed was that. Obviously, prior to founding your own startups, you worked at, among other places, one of the legendary bulge bracket firms, Morgan Stanley. And you specifically mentioned in the Yale School of Management podcast that working in Morgan Stanley's Institute for Sustainable Investing Group perhaps wasn't the right fit. What was it for you about working independently in your own boutique investment firm with Fuego Capital that really resonated with you? and provided a better fit as opposed to what you might have experienced at Morgan Stanley? The way I think about it now in retrospect is that large institutions, for better or for worse, already have entrenched culture. We say that flippantly sometimes, like, oh, that's just the culture of the place, or that's just the kind of the way things have been done. And and I think there's a, a beauty, and there can be a lot of beautiful things and important things about tradition. But when it comes to 
fundamentally incorporating environmental, social, and governance criteria into the like the core and central DNA of a firm or into investment strategy, it's really difficult, at least in my experience, to go from a more extractive kind of traditional way of thinking about finance to a more holistic impact centric way of doing things in a big institution like Morgan Stanley or JP Morgan or or many of the other Deutsche Bank other other uh, bulge bracket banks and I say that with a lot of respect for those who are working in those institutions and trying to affect change one of the other dynamics is that I think you have to be in a leadership role at one of those institutions to be able to to shift the dynamics and when I was there I was coming in as an associate and so there were a couple of things going on but the reason I have chosen smaller organizations or uh, even at this point launching my own investment banking group is because I'm able to set the tone for how to think um, more holistically and how to embed that into the core value system of how I think about investing. I'd be curious to know kind of a little bit more about this journey of deciding to ultimately launch Fuego Capital. You know, any particular lessons learned uh, or wins that that you'd like to share? Well, I've been on and off throughout my career. I've done a lot of independent consulting work. And at the time and retrospectively, I think one of the things I was looking to do was gather a lot of information from different groups and organizations and partnerships to inform um, the new way of doing, the new way of thinking about finance from an impact perspective. And it hasn't been until the last, I would say, 10 years or so. Technically, the term impact investing wasn't coined until 2007. Um, so I guess we could kind of pinpoint that as as one of the um, um, eruption points of, of the space, even though impact investing in, in different ways was happening, of course, with um, the the Quakers. Oh, is that right? I, I, I didn't know that. Yeah, the whole concept of negative screening came from the Quakers. They were just interested in taking out firearms and alcohol from their portfolios. And so, you know, this whole concept of what happens to your investments and whether you're having impact and whether you're having negative impact, it's not new. It's just that it's become a more driving force in the economy, I think, the last 10 years or so. Throughout my career, I've done a number of independent consulting projects. And when I think back about why I chose to take those on or, or what that was about, it was largely experimentation. And I think um, in many ways, I was blazing my own trail because there aren't a lot of dedicated pathways to become an impact investment professional, especially with the field being relatively nascent in, in a mainstream kind of way. So the term was was coined, impact investing was coined in, in 2007, for instance. Uh, not that nothing was happening before that, but I think that's kind of when things started to really shift. And being someone who started off in you know the nonprofit sector and was thinking more from an environmental activist kind of environmental um, conservation perspective, I felt like I needed to draw from a bunch of different threads to really understand and think strategically about where the kind of a f um, change I wanted to affect in the world. And so I was learning a lot about the financial ecosystem as I was going along and, and picking projects and partners. So I think this was kind of a natural fit for me in many ways. And to double click on the investment banking world, there just aren't that many 
investment banking shops that focus on impact investing and an even smaller number who specialize in like climate tech and circular thinking and real assets. So, you know, I think it's just to some degree has to do with um, where we are in the evolution of, of the investment banking world and and also the fact that I'm kind of used to and have worked on a lot of independent projects in the past. Obviously, we're in the midst of, I think it's fair to say, a, a correction in the in the public and, and in the private markets. And I'd be curious to know, you know, from your perspective, the extent to which this this market correction exposes opportunities or risks for the ESG space generally. Well, I think that ESG sustainable investing, responsible investing impact. There's a an alphabet soup going on that is not just reflected in those titles, but also how people think about collecting data, um, meaningful data and material data. I think to date, it's been a bit of a mess, if, if I had to say it in one word, because there hasn't been the kind of standardization that we've seen in in financial accounting, for instance. We have to think and remember that at one point there was no real standard financial accounting system either. So we are in this evolutionary process, which is really important. But how people think about ESG changes by industry, it changes by the observer, like the group that's kind of making the ter- determinations. So I think we're coming to some streamlining around um, what is meant by ESG and what is material to the, to businesses from that perspective. So I think it's hard to it's hard to say for now, but I think that what's clear is we are not using resources in a thoughtful, efficient, and regenerative manner. So there is, I think it's natural that we're having a course correction, and it's important that we do align our financial systems with the natural and social social systems that we depend on. So I think, yes, there needs to be a course correction, but whether the ESG data currently reflect like perfectly that course correction is I think we're we're a ways away from that. So what I would just like to see is more connections between specific industries, better data in within those industries connecting ESG factors to cost reduction, revenue generation and risk. And so I think we're as the data evolves and gets better and we collect more of it, we'll be able to make better predictive models and be able to assess future course corrections that need to happen. Moving from, from one market dislocation to, to another recent crisis that we've had, as, as you know, the world is still reeling from one of the worst global pandemics in history and the economic dislocation that that, that pandemic has created is still reverberating to this day. I'd be curious to learn a little bit regarding how Fuego Capital managed this exogenous shock that the COVID-19 pandemic has uh, introduced to to the global economy and to the investment banking space. Were there any specific challenges that you and Fuego had to deal with uh, with respect to the pandemic? And has it you know, perhaps even altered your business strategy? So I think there's like three things I would say to that to answer that question. One is I think it gave some opportunity and opening to talk to investors about a specific exogenous factor and how it had ripple effects throughout the economy and how it disrupted supply chains, for instance. So, it, you know, you can kind of double click on the food sector and say, 
you know, this, this disruptive element really impacted the way that food gets to market. And we really need to think about risks like this in the future with these global supply chains. And if you're not considering some of these factors or invest, you know, part of your portfolio, if you're investing in the food space, arguably should be more localized or should have certain um, dimensions to it that help you kind of mitigate future potential shocks in the system. And so I think it gives people like a lens and a tangible example by which to view some of these these risk factors. And the second thing is, I think it it changed the way capital raising is done to a large degree. I think there's some, you know, capital raising is a very relationship-based business. I think that makes a lot of sense. I think there needs to be a lot of trust. However, um, there were a lot of requests, you know, I think pre-COVID for people to meet in person. And so there was a lot of uh, kind of disruption in that and needing to to do meetings over Zoom and and kind of assess people's comfort levels. So I think in some ways, more efficiency has been built in and diligence timelines have been truncated a little bit to some degree because we don't have to um, always meet in person. <laughs> and I think the third thing is just people being more open to not seeing business as usual. Like there's this element of, of, of human nature where if something doesn't happen to us, it's hard to imagine it. And so I think for people who, by which like climate change and other kind of large scale global issues are still feeling kind of intangible and and not directly correlated with day-to-day life, I think COVID really presented kind of a real... <laughs> disruptive element in all of our lives. And so now it's easier to imagine how something like climate change can also be just as impactful. And so it kind of opens people's not only imagination, but like the tangible nature of of what some of these shocks can do to us and how vulnerable we really are. Yeah, I I was actually just going to say that, that it was kind of a very viscerally lived experience for so many people in the world, because we all know people that were affected, you know, many cases tragically affected by by the COVID-19 pandemic. And it's a reminder of our common and shared vulnerability mm-hmm. as a species. Uh, and so to the extent that that raises a certain level of consciousness, at least as it impacts the capital market space, that's something that I would imagine would play directly into the thesis that, that underlied uh, launching Fuego Capital to begin with. Yeah, absolutely. I, I wanted to maybe just double click briefly on uh, the second point that you raised, which is this notion that historically there was an expectation that deal making, you know, at, at least in many contexts, needed to happen in person, and perhaps uh, the COVID pandemic was questioning that underlying assumption. Do you see this reverting back to an expectation where uh, in person gatherings and and meetings in the context of uh, investing is is going to be a critical requirement. I think it's kind of like the response we're seeing at workplaces. I think it'll be a hybrid model, and I think there will be some workplaces that are more reverting back to the way things were, and some that are going all remote and kind of a combination in between. I think that's what we're going to see. Yeah, no, and I completely echo that that sentiment. I think even just looking at our own conference attendance schedule, I think. You know, where we as finalists are attending fewer conferences, but are 
doing it in a much more deliberative way than, than we might have otherwise done in a pre-COVID context. So Logan, you've been a valued partner to Finel since you joined the platform. And in that same Yale School of Management podcast, you mentioned that in your work at Fuego, the relationships that you want to sustain and to see thrive are with investors who are, quote, moving their money for good. And I just I love that line. Success here obviously depends on building out your investor network with like-minded bankers, placement agents, and other intermediaries. Do you see some potential for that on Finalis's platform, specifically in the recently launched Finalis Marketplace? And, and I, I think here, what I'd be curious to learn more about are the, the ways that you see that we can improve on uh, bringing individual investment bankers, deal makers together on the platform so that you can explore common affinities with them. Well, I'm really excited about what Finalis is building from many different angles, but one of them is this idea of aggregating bankers, like-minded bankers um, on a platform. You know, I think that this, similar to what I was saying earlier about how capital raising and investment writ large is a very much a relationship-based industry, I think that we need more opportunities as bankers to connect with one another and to learn about each other's opportunities and to to build trust. And I think Finalis is facilitating that with this platform. And I think to some degree, the success of it will be based on how much information you can get from a profile perspective. I think some of the matching functionality that can come from just keywords and, and really getting some background information on what people are interested in, and then providing a way for them to connect and then start sharing and um, working together. So I think a lot of the scaffolding is being laid and it's just a matter of the network effect now and uh, people starting to use and, and see successes come from the platform. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think, you know, I, I recently read Andrew Chen's the, the cold start problem, which if you haven't, I really recommend it to you or to any listener. As you start to think about building out a marketplace, most marketplaces face this cold start problem of how do you kind of bootstrap your way into having uh, meaningful supply. And I think the insight that we had is you really have to start with being the trusted platform for the long tail of the investment banking industry. And in doing so, we're kind of bootstrapping our way to uh, having really meaningful collaboration opportunities and deal sourcing opportunities for for folks on the platform. And so we're really excited, uh, Logan, to count on uh, your continued involvement in this initiative in the days to come. And so with that, Logan Yanoviak and Fuego Capital, thank you so much for joining us here on the Pencils Down podcast. Uh, very much looking forward to tracking your continued success and to continuing the conversation sometime soon. It was such a pleasure. Thank you so much. Finalis is a broker-dealer platform with everything that M&A advisors, investment bankers, and placement agents need to succeed. We deliver a broker-in-a-box regulatory affiliation solution replete with tech-enabled compliance, research and analytics, deal lifecycle management tools, and a first-of-its-kind deal marketplace. Learn more at www.finalis.com. You've been listening to Pencils Down, a Finalis podcast. Keep connected with us by subscribing to the show on your favorite podcast player. If you like what you've heard, please rate the show. That helps us keep covering the latest in the private securities brokerage landscape. Thanks for listening. Until next time.